This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We spend the hour today looking at the bellicose rhetoric and actions between Russia, Ukraine and U.S., NATO and the European Union. What is Putin doing and why? And what is behind the hyping of war from the United States, United Kingdom and NATO? So much so that Ukrainian President Zelensky has asked Biden to tamp down the rhetoric. Michael Cox, professor of international relations at the London School of Economics, joins us to discuss how he sees this crisis, including the differences within the European Union and NATO on how to deal with Russia and what he thinks are the forces and reasons Putin is doing this. Is it to force concessions on NATO, to deflect attention on grievances at home? And is this also the case in the United Kingdom and the United States? We'll get his take. And then Hillel Tickton, Emeritus Professor of Soviet Studies and Marxist Studies at the University of Glasgow, joins us with his view of the dynamic in Russia, with the United States, and in the world. Tickton argues that the long downturn and economic stagnation are the backdrop to understanding both Russia and the United States in this crisis. We'll get his views when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to spend the hour today talking about the crisis in Ukraine and Russia, NATO, Europe, the United States. For two months now, we have all been treated to this terrifying prospect of war in Ukraine. Moscow has amassed something like 127,000 troops at the border with Ukraine, and the United States officials have been calling for war, even nuclear strikes in response. Weapons and military aid are arriving in Ukraine in abundance. So what's behind Putin's bluster at the border and the U.S.-NATO overwhelmingly hawkish response? Many Washington officials and the media punditocracy in the United States, as I've said, are gung-ho on the imminent war that they're hyping. And everyone who's in a position to know the area, including area specialists and the political class, are pretty certain that there is no imminent war. And now Ukrainian President Zelensky has asked Biden to tamp down the war rhetoric. So this really raises the question about what this panic and increased tensions are really about. Some say that it's good for the military industrial complex, cynically seeing the Democratic Russian military assistance to Ukraine as a way to funnel more money to their war industry donors. Others see something far graver. Yulia Latinina of Echo Moscow thinks that what's behind this is Putin's bluster to force the West to relinquish any claims over Ukraine, which he sees mainly as a Russian province, and the West called his bluff. So what led him to do this? She says the catastrophic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan showed Putin that Biden has no appetite for war, so this would be a good time for Putin to press his case for a revision of the post-Cold War order. So I'm really pleased to have Mick Cox with us, Michael Cox, to help us unravel all of this to see what's behind the bellicose rhetoric in the U.S., U.K. and NATO, and also what the differences are within EU and NATO on how to deal with Russia and this crisis. So we begin with Michael Cox today, and then we're going to have Hillel Tickton later in the hour. Michael Cox is an emeritus professor of international relations at the London School of Economics. 
where he helped establish the Cold War Studies Center. He previously held positions at Queen's University in Belfast and at Aberystwyth University in Wales. He's authored many books on international politics, the Cold War, U.S. foreign policy, and the behavior of superpowers. His most recent books include The Post-Cold War World, and forthcoming this year is Agonies of Empire, U.S. Power from Clinton to Biden. And I should say, uh, Mick Cox is also a longtime editorial board, a member of Critique. So with all that, Michael Cox, Welcome to Jacobin Radio. It's very good to have you here. Thanks very much, Susie. Great to see you and great to be back on. So let's just begin with what I raised in the introduction. How do you see this discrepancy between the hyping for war or the calling of Putin's bluff? And for those in the know, all saying, no, this is there's, there's no war coming. Yeah. Well, maybe just start without going back into too much history, back to the disintegration of the Soviet Union in 1991, back to the Georgia crisis of 2008, back to the Maidan crisis of 2013-14, which, by the way, just to to make the point, wasn't really at that point about NATO expansion. It was about the EU, the European Union, that nice cuddly toy we call the European Union, uh, wanting to incorporate or at least try to bring Ukraine closer to the European Union, which is not, by the way, a military alliance. So just to get that right, it is to do with NATO. But I think the immediate cause of this crisis actually goes back to the European Union and the attempt by Brussels at that time to kind of build a closer socioeconomic relationship with Ukraine, which, of course, then Putin vetoed with the consequences that we know, the annexation of Crimea in this war by proxy in eastern Ukraine. So we've got to go back to that without looking to blame one side or the other, simply to understand the historical context. It is a very strange situation, I think, as you've implied, Susie. The Americans, uh, and they've said this throughout, whatever is said on media outlets and others in the United States about war, Biden has from the very beginning said the United States is not going to go to war. I mean, let's be clear. I mean, he said there will be sanctions, there will be more sanctions, and we're going to get maybe the Germans and the French to impose sanctions in the EU to pose sanctions. But there's no way that we are going to commit US ground forces to a war in the Ukraine. Now, I think that is in part back to Afghanistan, as one of your contributors said, but I think it's more to do with the fact that this is not a place you want to go to war in for all sorts of other reasons. The irony is, by the way, Susie, that if Ukraine was now a member of NATO, just think about it, under Article 5 of NATO, an attack on one is an attack on all, then if Ukraine was now in NATO in the situation being confronted by Putin, then NATO would then have to give a guarantee, of a real guarantee of military security to Ukraine with all sorts of rather devastating consequences, both for Russia, Ukraine, and indeed possibly the world as a whole. It could even be World War Three. So in some ways, the very fact that Ukraine is not in NATO and is very unlikely to join it. And that's the other paradox or oddity of this situation. Whatever is said back in Brussels at NATO HQ, everybody knows that Ukraine ain't going to join NATO any time soon. It's not uh, really talk- even on the cards, is it? They, well, they've talked not- about it. There's been rhetoric about it. There is a theoretical open door, to use the phrase. They won't rule it out. But I would bet you, knowing as I do a few people over in Brussels, both on the EU and the NATO side, the chances of them ever agreeing 
to NATO joining. Because think about it, again, going back to what I just said, Susan, if Ukraine's in NATO, then you've got to start giving real military guarantees to NATO. Now, going on the Russian side, on the Putin side, I agree with you. There's been a lot of hype in the West and war scenarios and all sorts of people getting extremely agitated about this. And there is, of course, an outsized risk of the thing spilling over. So I'm not being complacent at all on this. You know, wars often happen not because you intend them. But they happen because the situation is so fraught with many other tensions that it spills over into it. And one thing leads to another. And you end up with something you never intended or wanted. But let me just for the moment say, I think if we look on the Russian side, however many troops they've amassed on the Ukrainian border, and whatever the rhetoric coming out of Putin has been, and it's been pretty tough rhetoric. It's not just rhetoric on one side. It's been on both sides. Let's be blunt. He said he doesn't want a war. So if we start with the proposition, whatever the rhetoric is, and all these bellicose statements coming out from all sorts of people in the United States, more in the United States than I think than in Europe, by the way, where the rhetoric is much lower, the rhetoric is much lower. Certainly, if you look to Germany or France, you know, there's no talk there of war. There's talk of negotiated settlement. Monsieur Macron, the president of France, has been over there. They've been talking a lot. The Germans are talking a lot. You know, so there's no talk over here. About well, so the question then is really, Susie, having laid out the situation as I think I think is fair, what's the hell is this all about, really? You know? Let me just um, add I, to your question too, please. as you because I know you're going to go into this, Mick mm. Cox, but you've just started to say that there's divisions within Europe. A lot of people are seeing this as the kind of Anglosphere with the EU sort of around there. But then there's other questions too about Russia is still a Petro state. And I think it's something like 40% of the EU relies on Russia for natural gas. And so they don't really want to cause any sort of disruption in that, even though there's this climate crisis that is existential and is causing everyone to rethink energy, the way that we get our energy. So, But this comes into the question of whether or not this upsets the security of Europe. I know you're going to go into more of this now, but Mm. to also highlight what you just suggested, Nick, which is the differences within the EU. Yeah, well, on that, having having said what I've said, you know, I don't think there is going to be a war because both sides are saying there's not. You then got to ask the question, well, what is this really all about? And we can get onto that on both sides, not on just on the one side. In terms of what's going on inside NATO and what's going on inside the EU, I think there are some very sharp and clear divisions. There is... And this is very much the legacy of Trump, but it's also the legacy of Afghanistan and the the way the withdrawal was handled or not handled. Hmm. There is very serious disruption in Brussels, a very serious suspicion, let's put it no stronger than that, but at least real worries about the American decision-making process, American unilateralism, and a fear that European voice is being left out of this particular discussion about the future of Ukraine. And and Macron, and again, the new German chancellor said very clearly, very openly, this is not a bipolar relationship between Washington and Moscow. We Europeans live in the backyard, if you want to put it bluntly like that. We live where Russia happens also to be, which is in the European space. So we want a voice in it. There's that. There's certain suspicions on the European side about America, in a sense, acting unilaterally and taking over the whole debate about Ukraine. But there's also other differences. I mean, for instance, as you've already pointed out, if you take the question of energy, it's less oil, although that's important, it's more gas. And as you know, the Russians and the Germans have built this Nord Stream pipeline across the Baltic, notice not across Ukraine, very important. (laughs) 
So Ukraine has no say in that. And therefore, what does this say about the relationship both between Germany and Russia? And of course, some in America have been very hostile to that, saying this is going to make Germany and therefore parts of Europe dependent on Russian gas. And indeed, as they already are on certain forms of Russian energy like oil. That puts Europe in a very, very different situation. There's also a very strong domestic opinion in Germany, which should not be ruled out. You know, there, there is no great propensity, no, no great desire, no great willingness, no great demiurge, if you want, to see military action. I mean, in a sense, Germany used military force throughout the 20th century until 45. And in a way, one of the great success stories of post-war international relations is, is to wean Germany well away from anything like military action. They're very de- decidedly opposed to it. Public opinion won't support it. So there's all sorts of things coming into play there, which shows a divide both within Europe and between the Europeans and the Americans. And also, as you pointed out, Susie, or you hinted at, uh, the Anglosphere, which in this case, I suppose, means at this stage, of course, uh, the British and the Americans. And it's quite interesting in this country, my own, it's a very strange country, my own, called the United Kingdom. Quite amazing the way Boris Johnson is trying to divert, deflect attention away from the home problems he's facing, which are pretty big, uh, he could be chucked out, towards constantly talking, but if we've got a war coming up with Ukraine, we've got to have a clear, clear slate. So in a way, the diversion, using it as a diversion in a way to, to take away from domestic problems. And I also think, by the way, and this will be my last point, Susie, I think if we could analyze in the Russian side, and I think it is very complicated, and I'm not going to make any simplifications here, I think there's also an internal dimension to this in Russia as well. You know, I genuinely do think that. That was um, going to be my next question, too, yeah, because I, I follows right from is. that. I think when we're looking at this, I mean, Putin is thinking, one, yes, the West is in disarray. This is a good time to maybe exploit those divisions. Two, this may be a good time to do it because my situation at home ain't too great. And remember what's happened over the last few months. We've had an uprising in Belarus, which Russians really effectively have had to uh, underpin the regime there. We've seen another series of disturbances in Kazakhstan, which is a huge petro-state and the biggest of the Central Asian republics. His own situation at home, it would seem, is secure enough, but not so secure. If one held free and fair elections tomorrow, I don't know if Putin would win or not. I just I have no idea. But there is at least, I think, a sense. It's the old trick, Susie. It's the old trick. And it's not just the Russian trick. The enemy outside becomes the means and the way of deflecting attention from your problems at home. And the more people at home are diverted and deflected from thinking of their domestic problems and therefore directing their criticism against the leadership, or in this case, Putin. It can be directed against the West and against NATO, and indeed, to some degree, also against Ukraine. So I don't think it's only domestic politics, but I do think that is playing a role. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right, Mick Cox. And I wanted to sort of go deeper into that because it's a real conundrum. Putin has always cheated to stay in power, but he has a level of support that even if he had legitimate elections, he would win anyway. So there's that. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, he has cracked down on all dissent to the extent that the only sort of known opponent, Navalny, is in prison. And even there, you don't get a gigantic response to that. Although I think, you know, Putin is really people of their patience is worn thin with him. So Mm. there is all of that. And especially like, you know, when pictures were revealed of the mansion that he was building, I think something like one in three Russians saw that. And so the, the level of corruption 
has worn down any sort of support, but it's made people very cynical. So there's that. And that's also the case, as you said, in Britain, that Boris Johnson is taking advantage of it. So we know that, you know, war tension is a great way to distract people from their own grievances, especially, as you also mentioned, Kazakhstan, where this began over a huge increase in the price of liquefied gas petroleum, which is what they use. And that's not unlike what happened, you know, with the yellow vests in France and all of those anti-austerity, gigantic protests that we saw in 2019 that were only quelled by the pandemic, not quelled, but let's say uh, displaced um, when people had to stay home. So there's all of that. So you've, you've mentioned that it's conflicted interests everywhere and also that there are divisions in NATO. And then also that we sort of talked a little bit about the role of the U.S. and England in this. So maybe we should just keep going on that and talk a little bit more about if Russia is not likely to invade Ukraine, what is it trying to do? And how much does this reveal a sort of, as others have suggested, an effort to redefine the post Cold War post 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 Cold War order. Post Cold War, yeah, yeah. no, they're great, great questions. By the way, you mentioned the pandemic, and as you know, it's been a disaster in the United States, and it's not been great in the UK by any stretch of the imagination. It's not too great anywhere. But by the way, over well over three hundred thousand Russians have died of COVID too. So mm-hmm. it, it is also affecting now. Whether that's impacted on the decision making in Moscow, I don't know. I somehow doubt it. But again, it adds to this sense, and of course, that's impacting on the Russian economy. As well. The one thing keeping the Russian economy up and alive, by the way, of course, is the price of energy has gone up dramatically over the last few months. It's now up to nearly $100 a barrel and gas prices are going up. And it also has a very large sovereign wealth fund. So, you know, they're in a pretty strong economic position. And by the way, that's why they're less worried about sanctions than they otherwise would be if if the price was down at $20 or $30, $40 a barrel. Obviously, it's on the Russian side. There's a slip of the tongue. Well, it's very interesting. Putin has made a number of statements, as you well know, going right back to 2000, 2001. He believed that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a geostrategic catastrophe. He's reiterated that. He's pers- and clearly, what he wants to do is not essentially recreate the Soviet Union. I just thought, I don't think that's on the cards. But he obviously wanted to recreate a situation in which Russia has pretty full control, indirectly or directly, economically, or even by underpinning regimes militarily, such as Belarus or Kazakhstan. That they become dependent on Russia and they have to turn to Russia for both security and, of course, in, in terms of the economy. I don't think that's a recreation of the Soviet Union, but I do think it means it's kind of re- a recreation of a geopolitical space within which Russia can feel secure. And at the moment, it doesn't. It really doesn't, with NATO on its doorstep and with its political situation unfolding in Ukraine. You know, it cannot feel particularly politically secure. So in that sense... Although Putin looks very strong from an outside point of view, I think there's a deep insecurity in this situation for Putin. That doesn't mean to say, therefore, his policies are going to be benign or pacific, but it, quite the opposite, in fact. So I think that's that's one part of it. I think the, the other thing, of course, is that I think he does read the West in a certain way. Now, whether it's a correct reading, but nonetheless, I think he is reading a bit like the Chinese reading it. In many ways, the, the West is, is, in a sense, divided against itself. And that we can exploit those divisions as we have to. In the meantime, and this really gets to the essence of the point, by stationing 100,000 Russian troops and tanks and whatever else on the border, it is a kind of form of intimidation. (laughs) It's what we call in the business of international relations, coercive diplomacy. 
<laughs> remember in the mid-19th century, Susie, the Americans sent their black boats to Tokyo Bay, put their big black boats out in Tokyo Bay, pointed the guns at the palace and said, negotiate. And in, in a way, it worked. Now, I'm not saying it's exactly the same situation, but coercive diplomacy is, I think, here the name of the game. So therefore, what they want to do, and this is my reading of it, rather than war, 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 my reading of it is a form of use of coercive diplomacy to extract concessions both within Ukraine, possibly from the Americans, and almost certainly, as they hope, from some of the European states like Germany and France. And in the meanwhile, by sowing doubt within the quote-unquote West, about America's commitment to European security. By doing that, it further weakens the alliance. Fiona Hill, as you know, was a great advisor. Then she was great, but she was an important advisor and a, and a significant voice in the previous administration on Russia. Good, I don't know how she managed to work with, you, with, with Trump for so long, given her own views. She didn't for very well, as we know. She didn't very well, from what I can gather. No, I, I've met her a couple of times. But again, hmm. she basically thinks that what Russia's about is trying to bit by bit, weaken the alliance and hopefully over time edge the United States away from NATO. Not to undermine NATO or destroy it forever, but in a sense, just simply undermine the credibility of, of the commitment that the United States has. You know, Now, we're in the land of speculation and all sorts of other things might happen, but I think that's a reasonable enough way of thinking about where we are at the moment. There are other things we could bring in to the conversation, of course, Susie. Let me ask you a question about NATO, because, you know, George Kennan famously said in 1998 in that editorial in The New York Times that extending and enlarging NATO, especially in the beginning to the mm. former uh, satellites of the Soviet Union at the time and even to the near abroad of the Soviet Union, was the single biggest foreign policy blunder of the United States in the last half century, which included a whole lot of foreign policy blunders. And we asked at the time, I remember, Mick, I think you and I were in conversation, what mm -hmm. is the purpose of NATO once the Soviet Union implodes? And was it just a bureaucracy that found a way to perpetuate itself? And how do you see it? I just forgive me for the segue into an historical question, yes, sir, but I think it's pertinent for what is the role of NATO right now and why mm -hmm. is it still are we still in the business of needing an enemy and Russia will do? And so mm. let me hear it's, your thoughts I, on that. I think, I think this whole subject is clouded in rhetoric and clouded in a sense, not in misinformation, but in a lot of analysis, which is not entirely, it seems to me entirely. I've done quite a lot of work on this. And the more I've gone into it, look, let's go two or three very quick points. One, there was a deal between George Bush Sr. and Gorbachev that East Germany would become, as it became part of Germany, would then join NATO. And then there was an agreement, verbally or otherwise, that it wouldn't go any further. That's no doubt about that. And Putin repeats that time and time and time again. In that way, I think he's probably true. Uh, it wasn't written. It wasn't written in blood. You know, it wasn't. It, and there's a lot of historians who say, well, no great deal was really made. It was simply a verbal, verbal hmm. But though Jack Matlock, the last American ambassador to the USSR, a, a person I actually know, and a strong Republican, though, though not a supporter of Trump, I imagine. But nonetheless, he's, he's also come out like Kennan. And said, look, we made a deal, uh, the deal was broken, and therefore the, the worst thing we could have done is enlarge NATO, because all that has done is made Russia feel more and more insecure. And that is, in a sense, at the very heart of, of the problem. And, and somebody, you know, like a good realist, like John Mearsheimer up at University of Chicago, yeah. has also said very much the same thing. So there is that argument, and I've got a lot of time for that argument. I think, however, it's not entirely all the, the whole argument. One is 
that actually when the crisis broke out in Ukraine in 2014, I don't want to repeat the point, but the crisis broke out with the EU actually seeking a new deal with Ukraine. It wasn't joined, come join the military lines. Secondly, I think Putin knows pretty well that Ukraine is never going to be allowed into NATO anyway. And I'd, I'd also add to the fact that I'd, I'm not sure that anybody wants Ukraine in NATO, even less so now. If you know, Putin get, is, is getting his own way. In a way, what he's indicating that, that nobody will ever allow Ukraine into NATO, even though America keeps talking about an open door. So I think that's where we are in, in the current situation. For NATO, I think this is simply posing all sorts of headaches. And I think, again, I think that might be part of what Putin is trying to do. And let's, let's also remember, Susie, when we look at power in the world today, where does power really lie? I mean, it lies firstly in the United States. I've never bought into the argument of this irreversible, ineluctable decline of the United States. It's in trouble, no doubt about it. But the, objectively, the structural power of the United States still remains immense financially in all the other ways. Militarily, it spends as much as half the world put together. And the second player in all this is China. And maybe we could talk about China's role in all this, which I think is very, very interesting as well. Yeah, in that way, Russia is a small-time player in the world. You know, in spite of what it did in Syria, in spite of its, you know, its energy power, in spite of the fact it's got nuclear weapons, in spite of the fact it's a P5 member of the United Nations, nonetheless, it's got an economy the size of Italy. No insult to Italy, but nonetheless, you know, it's only about 1.3% of the world economy compared to America's 20-odd percent and China's 16. So in a way, it seems to me, and again, this is a theoretical argument as opposed to an empirical one, in a way, it's, it's a compensation for Putin to use the assets he's got, which are military and territorial, rather than the assets which he doesn't have, which are economic, which China certainly does possess. If you want to talk about China, we can bring that in, because I think China's playing an interest, very interesting role in all this, too. I I'd like to hear years, that. It's not been brought in enough. Okay, so let's, if we could do that, Mick, if we could just talk a little bit about, because that's, of course, the thing that's missing from most of the international discussion on this, and that's the role of China. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, (laughs) you know, as somebody who's got a good sense of humor, in fact, if you want to do international (laughs) relations today, you've got to have a good sense of humor. Otherwise, you'd be crying all the time. But um, it's I thought it was actually marvelous when people said, was it Biden or as one of his advisors we, we've been speaking to China to try to get them to put pressure on Russia to, you know, to pull back a wee bit. And I thought, where have you been for the last five or 10 years? You know, you know, since the Ukraine crisis burst out onto the scene in 2014, and even before that, the relationship between Russia and China has become increasingly close. I wrote about this in a, in a much underquoted article back in 2016-17, in which I said, I think this relationship is going to endure and get stronger and deeper. So the idea that somehow another China, who's now effectively an ally of Russia, although they call it a strategic partnership, not an alliance, is going to tell Putin to hold back. Why should China do that? Because if, you know, if Russia can make problems for the West in the short term, without going to war, of course, and if Russia can expose certain weaknesses in the NATO alliance and certain flaws in American grand strategy, then China becomes the beneficiary. They've also got one of their own problems in their own near abroad, and it's called Taiwan. And, you know, so they will be watching very closely what the U.S. It is essentially a U.S. response. That's essentially what NATO is. Let's be honest. 
um, you know, the British can do this and say that, and the Germans can say that and do that. But in the end, 75% of all the hardware, you know, most of the big decisions are taken in Washington by the American. I think they're waiting to see how Washington responds to this. So it's going to be very interesting watching how the Chinese play this as well. They don't want a war, and I think they're pretty well informed. And I think they've been pretty well informed by Putin. There's not going to be a war, but he's testing the waters as far as he can push it. Well, Nick, I think that's really a, a terrific roundup. So let's just end it here because I know that you have other commitments and I want to thank mm. you for taking the time. So just finish it, just the last thing, you know. So you would cast your vote in, there's not going to be a war, but there's going to be some, let's call it restructuring of relations. Maybe. I mean, look, I never want to say never because, you know, like you and like, like all of us, <laughs> we've all made predictions in the past that's turned out to be completely wrong. So we've got to be a bit careful. You know, it is a very tense situation and, and, you know, things can overspill and things can get out of control and who knows what. Uh, you know, but to use the old phrase, objectively speaking, the, the likelihood of it happening are, seems to me very limited. Uh, Putin, it would seem to me, would have no interest in a long war which would suck Russian troops and material into Ukraine. I think they would get a very bloody nose. I'm not a military expert, but everybody tells me they would because the Ukrainians are now fairly well trained. They're getting new equipment from, from the NATO and from the United States, and they would fight if it ever happened. So I think that the chances of it, therefore, are very, very slim, although it's not entirely ruled out. However, the crisis, I think, will go on because, in a way, Putin has an interest in maintaining the crisis because he's benefiting from it for the reasons I've given both domestically and internationally. There's no way either that the United States seems to be able to find a way out of the situation they find themselves locked into, which is ostensibly about Ukraine and NATO, when everybody in Washington knows Ukraine is never going to join NATO, or at least the likelihood of it doing so are very, very limited indeed. So it has a slightly Orwellian weird aspect to it, this whole thing, but still it is very dangerous. You know, 14,000, 15,000 people have died in eastern Ukraine. I don't want to minimise the situation. You know, the annexation of Crimea was illegal by international law. I'm, you know, that's the way it was, although most of the people living in Crimea are themselves Russians. And it's a tragedy. And I think that's why I'd like to end it, Susie. You know, standing back from all this, this is a serious tragedy. You know, it's a tragedy for the Ukrainian people. It's a tragedy for the Russian people. You know, they've been locked into this appalling, ridiculous conflict for the last five years. Ridiculous conflict in the sense that it, that it didn't have to happen, in my view. And it's going, to, it's going to weaken Ukraine's economy. It's going to undermine, undermine democracy in Russia, weaken democracy in Russia. And it leads to war scares, of which we have been talking earlier on in your programme. And that, to me, doesn't spell progress for world or for humanity as a whole. Mick Cox, thank you so much for taking the time, as always. And I should just tell people to go look for his book, the new one coming out this year, Agonies of Empire, U.S., Power from Clinton to Biden, a previous book, The Post-Cold War World in 2018. There's several in between, dozens of articles, maybe hundreds of articles. And Mick is an emeritus professor of international relations at the LSC and before that at Aberystwyth and before that Queen's University in Belfast. Nick, mm. always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Easy. Well done. And well done on the work you're doing with your radio program. You're still going. It's great news and it's great to see it. All the Thank best. You so much. All the best to all your listeners. Yes. This 
This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to continue this conversation on really what's going on in the world. What is Putin doing and why? What's behind the bellicose rhetoric in the United States, UK and NATO? And what are the interests and pressures behind Putin that he reflects that might help us understand what is going on? And I'm really pleased to have Hillel Tickton back with us to help us understand this. Hillel is an emeritus professor of Marxist studies at the University of Glasgow. He is the editor of the journal Critique, which was founded in 1973 as a journal of Soviet studies and socialist theory and evolved into a journal of just socialist theory with articles on political economy, philosophy, history, capitalist and non-capitalist societies, and the instability of world capitalism since the Cold War. Hillel has also written extensively on political economy and finance, period of transition, and that's a topic of a new book that he is writing. He lived in the Soviet Union during the time of Khrushchev, and he taught at the Institute of Soviet and East European Studies at the University of Glasgow. And as I said, I've invited Hillel on today to help us understand more about how he understands what Putin is doing at home, in his near abroad, the bellicose actions on the Ukrainian border, as well as what he's trying to do internationally. Last week, we had Bohdan Kravchenko on the show, and he said that Putin was trying to recreate a form of Stalinism at home and abroad in alliances in support for regimes in Venezuela and Cuba. And we just heard Mick Cox say that Putin has been forging an ever closer and deeper role with China. So there's a degree of a kind of reordering of international relations. And then there is what's happening internally in Russia. And while we're all obviously still at a speculative stage, we can, I'm hoping, begin to look at what these internal pressures and external pressures are on Putin, what social groups and interests he reflects at home, and and whether or not, Hillel, if, if you think that this war bluster of Putin's is a way to deflect grievances at home from declining living standards and lack of democratic rights. So with all of that, Hillel Tickton, welcome back to Jacobin Radio. Thank you very much. Very maybe we should okay, and maybe we should just start with that last question about how you see, I guess, where we are in the world and what Putin is doing within it. And I know that's gigantic, but I'm sure you'll take off from there. Yes, I think it's true that Putin himself is in trouble. That's to say, the presidency is in trouble. Clearly, when there were demonstrations in uh, Moscow. Uh, that showed, and of course, the fact that people who simply went in the street were then in prison for going out in the street is an indication of the uh, weakness of the system that is there. The only trouble with that uh, statement I've made is that it's not a system, uh, something that lies in between everything. The United States effectively did not allow Russia to develop into a uh, modern capitalist country. It didn't because it wouldn't allow the possibly rising factories, firms, corporations in the former Soviet Union a space within the world economy. Of course, it would have meant that the United States would have had to give way to some degree, but they explicitly stopped it. And in fact, Putin is only there because they did it. He then became an acceptable candidate because he effectively took a line which was 
in between the line that was held before under Yeltsin, which was basically to completely change the system without, he actually failed in doing so, but Putin took an intermediate line effectively, so that it was expressed, in fact, by the arrest of one of the chief budding capitalists, and his property was taken over by the state. The point I'm making is that the United States made a mistake in not conceding something to some small number of rising Russian capitalists so that they could form a classical capitalist class in Russia itself, which in turn, the logic of it could have been one in which the United States formed some sort of interconnection with them. Obviously, they would have been in competition, but nonetheless, it would be a capitalist competition. Anyway, that was stopped. It was directly stopped. The Russian firms weren't recognized. Of course, there was no question of assistance in building up a capitalist class. So what was left was something which is neither one thing nor the other. It's certainly not in any sense socialist. After all, the Soviet Union wasn't socialist on the one hand. And on the other hand, although if you look at the statistics in terms of the uh, quantity of the uh, economy, which is private enterprise, and which is not, then there's no question that most of the present-day Russian economy is indeed private enterprise. But major firms, certain major firms, are held and continue to be held by the state. And the fact is that the overall economy remains in the hands of the state. Not that they are directly owning everything, but they make the essential decisions, that's to say the state operators. However, because the United States effectively made it impossible for the Russian bourgeoisie to establish itself as an independent global bourgeoisie, as it were, the development of Russia went backwards. So that today, if you look at its GDP and its composition, it's a backward country. Mm. Whereas under Stalinism, there was substantial industrial development. Now, the industries were uncompetitive, of course, but today that industry has either been wiped out or is at a much lower role, so that Russia doesn't play an industrial role in the world economy at all. What it does is supply oil and gas on a massive scale, and that's what kept it going. But the fact is, the result has been that as long as there was a boom in the price of oil and uh, gas, that wasn't too bad. In fact, Sander Living rose very considerably from 2002 up to the point where it stopped in 2014, approximately. So what you had in Russia and have in Russia is this situation where Russia, although it was relatively backward, nonetheless was in fact a world power. Today it is not a world power. It does, of course, have atomic weapons. That is the case. And I just interject here, Hillel Tickton, because this is something that Mick brought up as well, that 
Of course, we know that there's been declining living standards in Russia for the last, what, since like 2012 or so, but that the threat of sanctions that the U.S. and Europe are threatened with on Russia right now because of the war bluster will have less effect because prices are going up so much. And Russia still, as you just said, is a petrostate. It's not so much oil, but gas to Western Europe. And so it could withstand sanctions for that reason. I I just wanted to sort of interject that because you've basically laid out, I think, really in a most intriguing way for our listeners, the way that Russia was on a trajectory toward capitalism that was thwarted and now somewhere it stands in between. And maybe we can go back to that part, but I want you to continue on on where you think it's standing in the world. Finish where you're I put it in as an introduction because it's not just true of Russia. That position is not just true of Russia today. The fact is the United States, being a modern capitalist power, wants to dominate the world economy, and it does dominate the world economy. So it's not just Russia which has been squashed in that regard or prevented or whatever word you want. Any budding power or major country does find itself in competition, of course, with other major firms. And the the United States is the most powerful uh, capitalist country in the world. So necessarily, they find themselves in competition with it. And the United States is able to guard its own country, its own consumers and producers. So preventing, as it were, the uh, would-be country, uh, the country which would want to have a a greater role in the world economy, preventing it actually exporting to the United States and insofar as the United States has influence in other countries, which it does in terms of agreements on what is allowed in and not allowed in. That's to say there are uh, trade agreements among numbers of countries. It's not just our state standing alone. The consequence of that, of course, is that if a rising power really wants to rise, it has to do a deal with the United States. The United States has to concede. But from the point of view of a firm in the United States, it's not quite so easy because it, it means that the firm in some other part of the world wants to take a role both in the United States and elsewhere, which it might otherwise get, in other words. So you have that competition, but you have also the force of the United States, its overall state force, where it prevents it. So I've referred to Russia, but the same applies to China. And we know it's now, it's happening exactly now. The United States has issued orders, I've forgotten at what level uh, and, and the firms, but it has just in the last week done precisely that to prevent China exporting the United States. That's to say they've introduced levy or a direct order in regard to certain Chinese goods. So what's actually happening is that an interesting contradiction and absurdity, really, that if capitalism wants to survive, then the United States should allow China to export its goods in competition at lower prices, as it were, to the United States. That would, of course, allow the standard of living of ordinary people to rise. But it would, of course, make it more difficult for the capitalist class. 
today, of course, it's not just the capitalist class. It, you're talking about major firms, which in themselves are institutions and which play an important role in the society as a whole. So it threatens the economy and the society as a whole. And the United States, understandably at this level, has issued orders stopping uh, certain Chinese goods entering the uh, United States. Now, the background to that, of course, is that there was an agreement made in 2002 between China and the United States that the United States would effectively allow China to export goods all around the world and the United States would actually, in effect, assist them. It certainly wouldn't stop them doing it, but there would be an end to it. The end was roughly 2018 and it has been coming to an end. The result of directly, of course, is that the Chinese themselves have had to change their policy. And you could say that there was a treaty, there is a treaty that they would stop continuing in the previous manner. That's say simply exporting all over the world and undercutting everybody. And the other countries would, if it wasn't stopped, they would introduce their, their own tariffs against China, if not more. Now that has come into being. And of course, the leadership of the United States is, of course, caught here. Because what has happened in the case of China is that, unlike Russia, which was kept in its place as the Soviet Union and later laws preventing it exporting, China has gone all over the world and is embedded effectively all over the world. Obviously, the United States cannot today, as it might have done 100 years ago, have prevented China from going into Africa. But mm. And of course, it has gone very considerably for Africa itself. It's building roads, etc., etc., which obviously these countries are very grateful for. Now, obviously, the reason China is doing it is not, in fact, to help the Africans, although you, maybe some people think that, but they're doing it in order to maintain their own interconnection, exports and imports in that form. And, of course, they are achieving it, and they have achieved it. And if you look at the balance of payments of China, then you can see that they are, in terms of sales, a world power of a very considerable size. The United States is now doing what it said it would do, so really, in that sense, it can't be blamed, that if China did not open up China as a whole and allow the United States to simply uh, export this, God knows what, then it would stop the Chinese from uh, exporting to the United States, etc., etc. So how do you see... Just before you go into your next point there, I want to get a sense of how you see this new international order in a form in which I guess you said that the United States is halting further development or did so for Russia in terms of capitalist development. And then on the other hand, made a deal with China. I think what I'm groping toward is how you see the United States as a sort of dominant hegemonic economic and, of course, military power that's the arbiter of how other countries develop their own economies and their relationships with the rest of the world. And within that, I guess, how this goes back to what Russia is doing and how it's trying to, I guess, insert its own voice and pressure a different sort of arrangement. Yes, I think the, the problem is that the United States itself is in decline. If it had not been in decline, it 
uh, that's to say it was changing its industry to the point where they were taking the next step in the development of machinery where machines make machines and the number of people actually involved in it is next to nothing. That's the logic where capitalism was developing, but it was deliberately stopped very early on, that process of replacing the workers with, with machines in the United States. That's to say that it would have been perfectly possible to have much more development in the economy of the United States if there wasn't a barrier to them actually doing it. That's an internal barrier in terms of profits and so forth and what would happen internally. So it hasn't done it in that way. The amount of replacement of workers by machines is considerably below what it could be. And the number of machines which would be of a much more sophisticated nature is also very much below what it what it could be. I've been through statistics at various times and it's pretty obvious that it is deliberate. In other words, the rate of development is far below what it could be. Now, that's the point that the United States logically could have become the world supplier of whatever it is, if it had allowed itself to develop much faster, of course, paid people a lot more. In fact, of course, if it had done that, the demand for a much more equal society would have gone very much faster too. And of course, they knew that, and that's why it never happened. So that the rate of growth has been, in other words, considerably below what it could have been. And of course, in the last 14 years from 2006 seven when the downturn came, it's much worse than that because the rate of growth is, is about 2%. And of course, in the last two years, it's even lower, the real rate of growth. So what it has meant is that the United States, because it is not growing as fast as, as it had been, as it were, in the 19th century and early 20th century, it's not growing as much as it as its potential. It therefore can't compete on a world scale. In other words, other countries are able to take advantage of that. Now, it's quite obvious if we look into the world now that the Chinese are catching up in certain areas. They have actually, even though overall, of course, they serve some distance from the United States in terms of GDP per person. But in certain spheres, they are moving to overtake the United States. China is moving in that direction. So in other words, logically, it will become a real competitor, not just in terms of uh, cheap goods, but in terms of superior forms of machinery, etc., etc. But the United States, in order to control this uh, process, where its own industry and its own exports are less competitive, has taken the step, as I said, in the case of Russia, to more or less damp down or just squash a rising industry there. And that is effectively what they are wanting to do with China. One aspect of that, of course, is that they want to invest directly in China. And China has allowed it to a very limited degree, but it's very limited. So what you've got is a declining the United States. Let's say the United States is in decline when it has to control the rate of growth in this particular way, however conscious or unconscious they are about it. So 
Anyway, the point then is the United States has taken this particular attitude of controlling the rate of growth or wants to control the rate of growth in China. And they want the Chinese to completely open up to the United States. Now, obviously, the United States in general, although not in all spheres, has industry which would be more competitive and they could quite easily, therefore, if it was if China was opened up, set up industry there. And that was agreed that they would effectively be opened up. China would be opened up. It was agreed in 2002. But they haven't done it. To a limited degree, there has been a certain concessions, but very limited. And that's what the fight is really about. And how do you um, see within that, you know, how do you see within that what the, the role of Europe, Russia, Ukraine, and the United States, some are suggesting that these are attempts to restructure the post-Cold War order. You're talking about us being in a period of transition in which you're saying capitalism you know, has failed for various reasons. What you haven't mentioned yet are the sort of democratic pressures, let's say from below everywhere, that are forcing some of these changes or whether they are, whether you think they are. Yes, well, thanks Thanks for making the point. Yes, I think what's implied in what you said is actually true. We have to look at it, I should have begun like this, we have to look at it in terms of the overthrow of capitalism in 1917 in what became the Soviet Union. And that initiating a process of change away from capitalism change from a society in which a small number of people rule, own, and have the wealth while the rest have a hard time. So we're in a transition period. By transition period, it obviously means that certain features of capitalism which are being replaced, the other features which remain but are being changed one way or another. Now, you, you can just look at it in straightforward terms, like in Britain in 1900, there was no direct taxation. Today, of course, there is a, a fairly high rate of taxation above, it's, it's above 50,000 pounds per year, it's 4%. Now, it's, of course, lower than it could be, etc. In the United States, it's very different, but nonetheless, you have the same point, that the society has moved away from a very small number, a colonel who are certainly in the capitalist class and who still play a crucial role in the society. But there is a large number of people who are in the lower part of the bourgeoisie. There is substantial so-called middle class, which is really a working class in the sense that they sell their labor power, even if they're relatively better off, etc. So the society has changed very considerably from a, what had been a capitalist society. And if you look at the proposals of Biden, for instance, like in terms of health, etc., clashed with a capitalist society. Now, that's true in general, of course, in Western Europe and Britain, you have a national health system, but it's more than that. There's this housing which is often provided in Britain. That was the case in the Conservative Party made it again private. But nonetheless, the state plays a crucial role in the society. And of course, what we see is that 
the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is actually in his program was for the state to intervene in the economy. So even the capitalist party is taking the view that the state must play a role in the economy. Now, of course, that's true, has been true now for some time. The point I'm making is that the term transitional society is the correct term. What we are having is society and the structure of society has been changing over time. Now, one can go through it sector by sector and show how different it is today compared to before 1917 or before whatever date you want. What is happening is the society is demanding this change. Now, I think that's what's happening right now, that the uh, attempt after 1980 which was uh, marked, of course, by the change of president in the United States, but also the coming to power of Margaret Thatcher in Britain. There was a direct demand in both cases, in Britain and the United States and in a number of other countries, for a return to the form of capitalism before the war. And in fact, what they did didn't work. Basically, it failed. The period to return to a and an original form of capitalism, if you can call it that, failed. And what it ended up was a permanent downturn from 2007-8 down to the present. So we have to say that that downturn is very much part of the transitional period. What it's expressing is a need for the society to take another step forward. Okay. And you could also say, I'm just going to help you finish that thought up, that the uh, pandemic has exacerbated this dynamic. And Hilla, I want to thank you so much for giving that large overview. I I see we really needed to have another half an hour so that we could work (laughs) it back to what you saw internally happening in Russia. So I'm going to invite you back so that we're able to do that. But I want to thank you for laying it out and hope that the listeners will find much of it provocative and intriguing and thoughtful. Hillel Tickton is an emeritus professor of Marxist studies at the University of Glasgow, longtime editor of Critique, which was founded in 1973 and comes out three times a year and has written widely on the former Soviet Union, on finance capital, on the transitional period, and has often been a guest right here. And I want to thank you so much for joining us, Hillel, on Jacobin Radio. Thank you for inviting me.